in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we're going to continue our Clash of Orders mini-series, where we talk to distinguished intellectuals and experts from around the world to understand what the idea of order means to different powers and how they intersect with one another. Last week, we talked with Asla Aydin Tashbash about the Turkish understanding of order. And today, I'm very happy to welcome Pratap Anumeta, who will tell us more about the Indian perspective on order. Pratap is currently the Lawrence S. Rockefeller Visiting Professor at Princeton University. He's the president of the Center for Policy Research, a New Delhi-based think tank, and was also the Vice-Chancellor of Ashoka University. He's author of many books, including The Burden of Democracy, Public Institutions in India, and Non-Alignment 2.0. Pratap, thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much. It's a great privilege to be here. So I'm asking all of my guests five big questions about the, the world order. And what I'm trying to do is to understand the sort of mental furniture which the leaders of different great powers bring to, to, to thinking about order and to what extent they, they intersect with one another. And be great to, to go through them with you. The first big question is, is, is really about disorder. Um, I'm sort of asking each of the people I'm speaking to what they think the, the top five threats to order are in the, for the sort of uh, political and intellectual elites in, in uh, the countries, in the great powers that, that, that they're talking to us about. So from an Indian perspective, what do you think the, the biggest threats to order are? So I think the biggest threat to order, uh, to order is a world which does not allow all countries equal space for their development. Uh, that has actually, I think, been the long been the cornerstone of Indian foreign policy and Indian conception of thinking about the world. Um, and I think this is the kind of thing that, for example, affect thinking about trade, climate change, economic relations between countries, technology development. So fundamentally, a disordered world is a world which is characterized by inequalities of wealth and hierarchy in the international system. I think the second biggest threat, uh, which is politically talked about a lot more, is, of course, the presence of fundamentalist forces that do not believe in the sanctity of the nation-state system. From an Indian point of view, for example, at least in recent years, uh, Islamic fundamentalism, particularly as it is supported um, by states like Pakistan, has been thought to be a big threat to, I think, the global order. I think they would class Putin's Russia as a version of that threat, which is a project that is trying to redo the current nation-state system through war. So any ideology, in some senses, that destabilizes the current system of territoriality, I think, is considered, um, I think, a threat. Migration, I think, which in part is a symptom of the unjust development order of the world. 
but the ways in which migration both within the region and across the world might actually destabilize societal relations i think that's that's pretty much on top of i think you know people's uh, minds um, in 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 some ways and i think last and finally a global system that does not respect the diversity of political forms in the world order which is to say any system that looks upon the world order as involving some kind of telos where all nation states abide internally by the same norms roughly we all end up like liberal democracies the inversion of imperial uh, liberal imperialism uh, where the premise is that we need to move to a world order where domestically we are all aligned uh, which is suspicious of diversity in the international system i think any version of liberalism that takes that view is also considered a threat to world order so that uh, brings us kind of neatly to the the second question which is you know when indians or indian kind of elites think about order what kind of mental model do they have for for the kind of future of of, of global order is it a multipolar system is it a kind of bipolar world is it us centric sinocentric are, are there kind of distinctively Hindu or Indian variants of, uh, of, of order which come from your ancient civilizations? Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> there are conceptions of order that come from ancient civilization. How applicable they are to the conditions of the modern world is an open question. But I think one way of thinking about actually Indian conceptions of order is actually none of the above, which is to say that I think there is a sophistication in thinking about power in the international system and so you know in some senses one of the great lessons of the 20th century and 21st century is that in local and regional contexts even a very small power can be actually very destabilizing even a small terrorist group as we saw with al qaeda right which in some senses had huge ramifications for the international system can actually in some senses be destabilizing So the first I think conception of order is not to think of power entirely in structural terms is it one power two power large powers have lost battles in the 20th century it is to actually think of power as something that has to be in some senses apprehended through its very concrete effects in particular contexts so maybe at at a very high level of kind of global construction you could say yes there are two or three dominant powers uh, it's a bipolar world uh, but frankly when it comes to securing order in local contexts that bipolarity might not amount to much it might not explain what happens in africa it might not explain what kinds of risks are there even in perhaps north america so i think the indian understanding has always been that look one has to think of power in very subtle ways i mean this ancient indian thinker kautilya for example had this mandal theory of the international system which is really a series of concentric circles of power right so in a in a in in a local context what actually matters to order might be taming a small republic on your border you have to think of friends and enemies in particular contexts uh, are they in your neighborhood or are they distant right so i think we must not get to hung up by very structured conceptions of international order that are implied by terms like bipolarity multipolarity polycentricity power is fluid 
and an international conception of order is always in some senses gauging the fluidity of that power and going with it. And when you think about powers within that order, you've got kind of multiple different conceptions which are uh, being developed. Some people think more in terms of civilizations. It's a very sort of pre-modern idea of power and of actors. Other people think much more in kind of modern terms about the nation state with clear borders. And, you know, that's a, a different way of thinking about how power can be balanced, which is more bounded. There are, you know, obviously Europeans have got much more postmodern ways of sort of imagining these things and they think about interdependence in, in kind of different ways. I mean, are there specific Indian contributions to, to, to thinking about that? Which of those, do any of those frames have resonance within India or are there other ones that, that you think India brings to the party? I mean, I do think it's 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 actually all of those. I mean, which is to say that I think the idea of a civilization is certainly very powerful and I think has a lot of political resonance in India. India thinks of itself as a civilization state in some senses. But I think behind... What does that mean in practical terms to be a civilization? That's what I'm coming to. Exactly, right? So I think when we think of civilization, I think in a sense it has three different components to it. One is that you must be the source of some idea or some exemplarity that is universally attractive, that other people might want to be interested in, and therefore it's a source of not just pride for you, but it's a source of interest to other people. Behind every great civilization, as they say, there's a great idea. You might say American civilization. If you want to think of the idea behind it, you know, some, some would argue a certain conception of liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And to the extent that many Indians think of Indian civilization as generating a very distinctive conception of human flourishing uh, around ideas of spirituality, for example, there is, I think, a lot of resonance that, you know, if Indian power is to grow, many of these ideas, I mean, you know, in, in the contemporary parlance, for example, yoga, which the Indian government is promoting with now full ardor, that there is a set of ideas that contribute to human flourishing that have their source and origin in your civilization. And I think spirituality, religion, that amalgam in a broad sense, I think has always been, I think, very distinctive to India, at least Indian's conception of, 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 of its own power. I think the second component of it is how you actually think of yourself. And you know, Jawaharlal Nehru had this kind of really remarkable description of India as a palimpsest, which is that what makes India distinctive and what will be attractive to other people is the fact that every other civilization has also left its imprint on the civilization. So India is a civilization that is a Hindu country, it's a Muslim country, it's a Christian country, it's a Parsi country, it's a European power, it's an Asian power. It is a bit romantic in some ways. But I think it does, it, it, at least historically, I think, energized a certain kind of, I think, uh, I think, pluralism. I think the modern twist in it, which is really what contemporary India is grappling with, is that people are willing to say that, look, all of this stuff is very nice, but it amounts to nothing in the international system if you don't have a hard state backing any of this or any of these projects. Hard state, hard power, including nuclear weapons. And that historically, India's mistake was to think that it is just the civilizational power. 
that is actually going to get you through. In fact, in currents of Hindu nationalism, there's a strong critique of this version of civilizational power, that what somehow made India weak was the fact that it subordinated a discussion of values, Buddhism first, Gandhism later. It kind of privileged that discussion of values to actually thinking in real politic terms. Um, and so what we need now is somehow the synthesis of hard power with those civilizational values. But presumably that idea of the palimpsest is not how Modi thinks about India. Uh, absolutely not. In fact, Hindu nationalism is defined as the project to undo this conception of India as a kind of palimpsest, that if you are to think of Indian civilization, you must think of it in singular terms as being constituted by Hindus, for Hindus, uh, and whose dominant purpose is to preserve some conception of Hindu identity and values. It's actually, and, and, and so what you're seeing right now is in a sense, is, is, is a debate, a, a political contest where both sides are speaking in civilizational terms, but they have a very different conception of what the distinctive identity of that civilization is. But, so in some ways it's kind of Hinduism first, if not, um, if, if not America first or India first. But what is the spiritual component of the, of the, the kind of Hindu nationalist notion of India as a civilizational power? So, you know, the honest truth is that, at least my reading, Hindu nationalism, it wants to use the spiritual component as somehow legitimizing India's moral authority in the world. So Mr. Modi has this favorite phrase. He uses Vishwaguru, India as the teacher of the world. You know, somehow it will kind of disseminate values of oneness with nature, yoga, non-violence. But it's almost that their belief in this is just performative. It's ticking off a box. Whereas the core of Hindu nationalism is the... There's non-violent nuclear weapons and, and a lot exactly not just nuclear weapons i mean you know non-violence as kind of you know beating down on minorities and saying that the project of creating a hindu state requires the decimation of liberals leftists assorted minorities so their core conception in some sense of hindu nationalism is that the indian state is first and foremost the protector of Hindus and Hindu civilization, and that the project of nation building has to be in some senses the privileging of Hindu identity and Hindu power. Uh, and the key phrase there is Hindu power, that, you know, that there's no other homeland for Hindus, so to speak, and therefore it has to be the mission of the Indian state to in some senses make sure that Hindu dominance you know, is, 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 is its primary function, at least as far as the subcontinent goes. So that brings us to the sort of third question, which is about this idea of the rules-based order, which is a very popular term in American and European discourse, particularly in the, the light of the, well, the invasion of, of Ukraine. But for, from a kind of Indian elite perspective is there was there a rule-based order or is this just western hypocrisy and if if so if there was how would it be defined if there wasn't um is there a kind of desire to have some kind of rule-based order which would look different 
from what we have at the moment? To be fair, I think for Indian elites, there was never a rules-based order. It wasn't just Western hypocrisy. It was just the international system was and still is hierarchically constituted. For Indian elites, I think a rule-based system would be a much more just and equitable world order, not based on hierarchies of race, as historically has been and still continues to be, not based on economic relationships that evolve uh, asymmetric exchange, not based on economic development models that privilege some countries over others. So at one level, you cannot distinguish a rules-based order from a more just world order. I think to be fair to Indian elites, I think the one place where I think they do have some authority, which is that, look, the one component of a rules-based order, as Mr. Modi said to Mr. Putin finally recently, is that you're not going to think of war as an instrument of furthering your national interests, right? And with India, I think, to be fair, I think outside of its own region, and I think politics in our region is more an extension of a long civil war than it is a kind of international relations problem. I think India has been committed to the proposition that no sovereign state should ever threaten another sovereign state. That's at least formally its position. I, I, I don't think it was as clearly articulated in the case of Russia's invasion of Ukraine as it should have been, to my mind. Um, and it was certainly never articulated in terms that actually named the aggressor very clearly, as, you know, as, as it should have. But I think one of the things that I think does make India, I think, an interesting big power is that outside of its relations with kind of Pakistan, which is said is a kind of continuation of a long civil war in the subcontinent, it has remained committed to the proposition that a great power will not threaten another power outside of its boundaries. That has to be a non-negotiable of the international system. And that's something that neither the United States nor Russia has ever ad adhered to. And yeah. increasingly, there are worries whether China would adhere to it as well. But it's quite a thin idea of, um, of universal rules. Are there any other rules which India thinks should be universal or is it more committed to a, to a more kind of pluralist order where everyone develops their own rules and you don't have reasons to impinge on other people's sovereignty except in that very extreme case of, of invading other countries? I actually think India has a very thick conception of international order. I mean, it, it has space for pluralism, but you know, pluralism conceptually doesn't answer the problem what should the relationship between these different plural orders be, right? I mean, you still have to talk about the relationship between uh, these different plural orders if they exist. And that, I think, takes, back, takes us back to the question of justice. As I began by saying, I think one thing people in the West don't appreciate as much is that the core of the international order, the thick conception is always centered on development. Are the rules of the international system whether it's in trade, whether it's in finance, whether it's in interstate commerce, whether it's in territorial acquisition, such that allow for the equitable development of all countries. And every position that India has taken on the international stage, whether it's on climate change, whether it's on trade, whether it's on suspension of intellectual property rights or the production of drugs, actually stems from this very thick conception of international order involving justice 
and you know, because I think a lot of the Western IR scholarship tends to put development in another category and international relations in one, it actually, I think, misses this very thick demand that I think India is actually placing on the world system. Representation in international bodies. If you're going to have an international architecture, right, that coordinates this plural world order, that international system of representation has to be more equitable and just. So I actually think India's conception of world order is actually quite thick. It just doesn't have the power to actually enforce it. And that was my sort of fourth question was about how India defines some concepts like power, freedom, justice. So justice seems to be absolutely central to the Indian idea of order. What about freedom and power? So, you know, I think on freedom, I think there are two kind of different dimensions to it. I mean, you know, at least until recently, I mean, India is still calls itself a liberal democracy. And to that extent, I think internally it was committed to the proposition that the dignity and freedom of each individual has to be the cornerstone of a legitimate system. But I think India is very reluctant to universalize liberal democratic values. In that extent, it is actually much more pluralistic than liberal Western liberal conceptions of world order are. Partly it's a concern out of imperialism that you no country should be in a position to impose their system on others. Partly, I think it's a much more realistic and subtle understanding of how countries come to their own political development, that a lot of suffering and dislocation in the international system is caused by this hubris that powers have that they can actually go out and develop into other countries, that they can mold those countries in their image. So I think at that level, I think India is much more comfortable with a plurality of political systems in the world, including the fact that some of those plurality, those those international, uh, those those political systems might not be friendly to liberty. They might actually be quite internally oppressive. But I think India's instinct is to say that in those cases, one must tread very, very warily. Right. Great. So that brings us to, to kind of the final question that I'm asking people, which is about the past and the way that it shapes, that it is used to, to shape the present. You know, in Britain, uh, it's always 1938, and um, a lot of the recent history has been seen through the prism of Munich and other continents like that. Um, for Indians looking at the world at the moment, are there sort of key events and periods which are shaping their understanding about today's order, which are which are being used to explain the world that we're in at the moment and which are feeding into to choices that Indians are making? I think for India, the most important year is still 1947, not just because that's the year of India's independence, but because that's the year of the partition of the subcontinent. And first of all, the partition of the subcontinent is very central to thinking about Hindu nationalism as an ideology. Um, I mean, that, you know, they think of partition as a kind of betrayal. They think of partition as breaking to get, breaking up of a sacred geography of India. Most of them think partition was also an imperialist com- conspiracy to keep India weak, a form of divide and rule. So in that sense, I think 1947 and, 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 and almost all of India's strategic problems comes from many of the unresolved issues of 1947. So I think I think 1947 is probably 
the you know the dominant year in contemporary India's imagination. And are there other? I mean, we talked a bit at the beginning about some of the kind of these civilizational stories. Are there are there other kind of ideas or period? I mean, it's it's very interesting. You know, if you look at at the Russian narratives about where we're at, at the moment, they're very freighted with different versions of uh, alternative histories for for Russian civilization. China is going for a period of treating the different periods of its history in a very kind of creative and, and sort of interesting way. What are the kind of main uses of longer history in Indian minds? But also the other kind of thing, which the other metaphor that a lot of people are using is the, the Cold War. And India obviously had a very different Cold War. Is that something which is being debated much when people think about the nature of order in the future? Wonderful question. So two two different components of it. So one is, you know, what's the kind of the long, deep memory that's kind of shaping contemporary India? Uh, and, you know, in India, there is an active debate prompted by Hindu nationalism, which kind of wants to turn the clock back of Indian civilization to a pre-Islamic past. Uh, I mean, you know, Mr. Modi's characterization of Indian history as a history of thousand-year subjugation. So it's not just Western colonialism, but in some senses, uh, uh, you know, some form of kind of Islamic colonialism. You know, this is actually a very novel way of thinking about Indian history. Yes, Islam came from outside, but there was a kind of attempt in the nationalist movement to say that uh, they had become as Indian as anything else. And a lot of India's domestic conflicts and its attempts to project power across the world are driven by this kind of attempt to sort of erase the imprint of that thousand year history. Somehow, if you could, you know, this fantasy, if you could de-Muslimize India, at least culturally, that I think is a very, very powerful imprint in contemporary Indian politics. It's being reflected in, you know, the way we are thinking of monuments, the way we are reclaiming back old mosques, you know, temples, uh, the renaming of India's landscape. That's the longitude of kind of civilizational identity that Mr. Modi... So Islamic occupation has deplaced Britain as a as the kind of key... Oh, absolutely. I mean, Hindu nationalism is far more resentful of Muslims than it is actually of Western imperialism. Right. And, and I think with pretty, pretty catastrophic domestic political consequences. Uh, I mean, Mr. Modi said when he laid the foundation stone of this temple at Ayodhya, uh, you know, he said this day is at least as important as 1947, you know, 15th August, India's Day of Independence was. I mean, that's that's as strong a marker as you can get of who you actually think the enemy is. On the Cold War, very quickly, uh, I think it does loom large. And as you rightly said, India's Cold War was very different. But the big lesson that India draws from the Cold War, which I think is still very important, not to get drawn into others' powers' conflicts on their own terms. And there is a sense that every state, including our neighbor Pakistan, that got drawn into the Cold War uh, on terms set either by Russia or by the United States, actually paid a heavy price. So the cornerstone of India's foreign policy has, in a sense, always been that Whatever might be the other conflicts between the great powers, they should not define your interests 
they should not define your identity and your mission has to be to unsettle the terms in which the great powers are actually defining that conflict. Because there is this very active debate about what non-alignment means now in the 21st century. It's something that you've obviously thought about and it's something where India obviously has a huge intellectual contribution to make. Could you talk a bit about that? What does non-alignment 2.0 mean? So, you know, I mean, I, mean I, think, I think first of all, I think it's important to make the distinction between non-alignment uh, as a philosophy and, and the non-aligned movement, which was this, you know, motley kind of developmental third world alliance during the Cold War, which nobody wants. I mean, the world has become too complicated for that. And, and that was a sanctimonious talking shop uh, for most of the time. Non-alignment, broadly speaking, whether we use the name or not, uh, has the following components. The first, the great desire to preserve India's strategic autonomy. Uh, I mean, I think that's that's always been central to non-aligned, thinking about non-alignment, and which is why India historically has been very wary of alliances, for example. It's very transactional partnerships. Uh, it's very enduring partnerships in some cases. But it's been very wary of becoming part of any alliance structure. The second, I think, component that in a sense follows from, so how do you create space for strategic autonomy? Which is whatever might be the relationship between the two great powers, you must always put yourself in a position that those powers actually court you, both sides. So even during the Cold War and even during the era when India had tilted towards the Soviet Union after kind of being rebuffed by the United States in the 1970s, that's what suited our development model. India India actually had pretty good relations with both powers. I mean, we forget that in the 1970s, the United States was using Israel as a proxy to help India in many ways, right? So this objective that your relationship with all the other dominant powers should always be better than their relationship with each other. And that you can actually leverage, you can leverage your position in the international system in such a way that all powers actually court you. Right? That has, I think, been the primary objective of, I think, Indian, uh, I, I think Indian diplomacy. The third is, in a sense, ideological that, you know, during the Cold War, the world was seen in ideological terms, this clash between liberal democracy and communism, between capitalism and communism. And I think the core impulse of non-alignment has been that the international system should not become a plaything of particular ideological systems. That you should, you know, that's not actually the, the, the most appropriate prism through which to think of international conflict. So India is very, very wary of any construction of the international system that sees it through ideological binaries, whether it's capitalism versus communism, or even now liberalism versus authoritarianism. I mean, it's one thing for India to say that, look, liberalism might be the best thing for India. That's what we at least historically used to say. Uh, but it's another thing to say that that should be the basic guiding principle of world order. So very, very suspicious of ideological constructions of global conflict. Great. Uh, I think we covered a huge amount of, um, of ground, um, thousands of years of civilization, a lot of order and disorder in half an hour. 
but we have one thing left to do on this podcast in which we usually end with a, a bookshelf section. Obviously, if people want to understand some of these big things you're talking about, they should read your books and we'll put links up to some of them on our website. But are there other things that you think would be helpful if people want to, to get inside the self-conceptions that India has of, of its role in this new global disorder? I'll say quickly two things. One, I think it is important to read the original writings of most of India's leaders, uh, beginning from Jawaharlal Nehru to actually Prime Minister Modi's speeches carefully. I think they actually reveal a lot. I mean, we tend to dismiss these statements as, you know, these are sometimes maybe written by for particular occasions, uh, but they actually say a lot and I think convey a lot. The second thing I... Are there particular speeches by Modi which people um, might want to look I at? I think, for example, I mean, I, I do think his speech at, for example, the foundation stone of this temple at Ayodhya, uh, which is one of the, the speeches he's given. It's, you know, it's about 80, 90 minutes. Uh, but, you know, it, it kind of distills a conception of Indian identity, I think, very, very clearly and as starkly as I think you can get. But lastly, I can't resist, I mean, you know, because she just passed away. It's not a book on India. As you were asking your questions, I could not but think of, you know, Hilary Mantel has this great line in the mirror and light that it is always the wrong bits of the past that people want back. And I think that sentence seems to sum up pretty much all of global politics at this point, whether it's Russia, the United States, Italy. Uh, So maybe we need some acute moral psychology here into sort of, you know, people who actually understand how power works. What a wonderful way to end. Thank you very much for for talking to me, Pratap. If you've uh, enjoyed listening to the podcast and you want to look at some of the publications we've mentioned, we've put them on our website at ecfr.eu. And if you've enjoyed listening to this episode, you might want to check out some of the earlier episodes in the series and to subscribe to the podcast, which you can do on whatever platform you've used to download this one on and while you're there if you fancy giving us a positive review and a five-star rating we'll be very happy it helps bring other people to the podcast but for now from Pratap Banumeta and myself Mark Leonard it's goodbye the researcher of this podcast is Lucy Halkenthal and the editor of this episode is Marlene Rieder.